0: Welcome, especially to the mothers, obviously, and if it's your first time as well, welcome. Um, today's message is titled, "Mercies in the Disguise. And over the past couple of months, um, the church has actually gone through a, a series dealing with how the church sort of formed, so the early Christian history, if you like, so the early, early years, early AD times. So, she you got a slide ready, great, all right. So I always got wondering, like, we hear about all these messages, all these different people living in those times, what it's actually like to live in those times. And I guess a good way where we might be able to figure that out is you can sort of tell what the world or what the society is like based on the inventions that are sort of coming out at the time. So, for example, nowadays might be, I don't know, 3D printing or everything's automated or things like that. You can sort of get a picture. Oh, okay, I can have a guess of what sort of society that is. So how about the early years? So we've sort of dealt with the pretty much the first 300 years after Jesus, so the first 300 AD. And I looked at the inventions that actually were um, that came about during those years. And in the first century, um, some guy came up with a putting the rudder at the back of the boat, so obviously for steering, the butcher's dam, and that was also the time when people transitioned from using like a scroll to actually a codex of what we now know as a book. First century, second century, um, bottom left-hand pictures, a uh, wheelbarrow, Somehow, um, Bottom right is uh, the sail, it's called a Latin sail. I don't know much about sailing, but what I do know is it's triangular this time instead of the old square type, so it's actually more manoeuvrable. So I guess it helps the discovery in that sort of time period when they were exploring the world a bit more. And the top one's actually quite interesting. who um, left one's the actual picture. is right, actually a diagram of what it is, and it's actually an early seismometer. Siz- the device that actually uh, measures earthquakes. So how it actually works is you can see there's like a sort of pendulum in the middle that swings. So when the ground shakes and the pendulum starts to swing, it actually has a device that releases um, a ball into the frog's mouth. So they would come along and go, oh, hey, there's a ball there. It's an earthquake. Oh, not an earthquake, but there's tremors. So that was one of the early signs of it. So that's second century. Third century, we get into more like warfare, and, which is, I guess, kind of telling of the time. Um, top left-hand picture is actually a semi-automatic crossbow, which could actually fire eight to ten crossbows. I didn't know they could do that. Um, on the right, it's um, not Galen's wedding. It's actually used as a military um, military ploy to sort of send messages out to like a long distance. And the bottom left is actually quite interesting. It's actually called a south-pointing chariot. So riding around in your chariot, you actually have this guy that always points due south wherever you go. So I guess in terms of again, navigating again, you sort of always know which way you're going. So I guess all things hand-handy with warfare. So I don't know, with knowing those those things, it sort of gets me, oh, okay, I can have a sort of a picture of what it's like to live in that time. But how about Christians, though? There's a book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark, and he gives a really, really nice um, overall picture of what sort of world Christianity was or how the world depicted Christianity, especially in those early years. So you can follow on the screen, I'll read it out for you. So as Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships, able to cope with many urgent problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for, for attachment. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. That's a really nice picture. I know Christianity kind of tainted today in terms of the picture, but I kind of like that view of what Christians are about and it's about helping and making the world a better place um this is sort of like third party in a way. I'm sure they've done their research into looking into what time was like. But what I have to show you next is actually a letter that was written at that time by a Christian to the emperor at the time in AD 150. And he sort of addressed more what the mindset of the Christian was like back then. And it's very interesting because think about it. This is writing to the most powerful man in the world. So equivalent of us writing to Barack today. So you can imagine the kind of formalities you expect of a letter, you know, Your Ordinary, Your Highness, or whatever it might be. But this is how this letter goes. Since you are called pious and philosophers, guardians of justice and lovers of learning, pay attention and listen to my address. If you are indeed followers of learning, it will be clear... We have not come to flatter you by this writing, nor please you by our addresses, but to beg that you pass judgment after an accurate and searching investigation. As for us, no evil can be done to us unless we are convicted as evildoers or proved to be wicked men. You can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. So that sort of paints a di- sort of different picture amidst all the good that was happening in, the, in those times. It wasn't met with like, great, these Christians are fantastic, open arms type reception, but rather everything that the Christians did that was good, it was sort of met with opposition against that. It wasn't easy to, I guess, be a Christian at that time because whatever you did was always met by you know, unfair trials by the look of this letter. So what made the Christians then so pious to even say what the line before was, um, you can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. I mean, you got to really believe, you got to have a real strong zeal to be able to say a line like that. And got me thinking, what on earth could these Christians be thinking? How can they have that so much passion for what, for Christianity? And I think the answer actually strangely might lie in, in Genesis chapter three. In, okay, that's the, it's not the Garden of Eden, but that's how I picture it looks in my head. So waterfalls and everything looking really beautiful. But if you, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter three. The, The words will be on the screen if you're not. But if you know, if you have it there, even better. So we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3 and as to why these Christians have all that zeal they possessed. And Genesis 3 is obviously famous for the fall of man or when Adam and Eve took that fruit. But if you actually look at dissect the chapter carefully, that's just the first half of the story. The second half actually focuses much more on the, I guess, the repercussions of that event or more God's solution for that. Some people might even put God's punishment, if you like, for that. And we're going to take a look at one, I guess, punishment or discipline, if you like. There's a few handed out. I will cover the one handed to human and I will cover the one handed to uh, the male side of Adam. There is some female, um, punishment, if you like, but I'll save that for a more appropriate speaker. But in some ways, they both affect each other. So we're going to have a look at, um, God's punishment, if you like, or God's discipline he gave to Adam as soon as the fall fell, as soon as the fall happened. So Genesis chapter three, if you have your Bibles, have a read of verse 17 and 18. If not, you can follow on the screen. The Bible says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree with which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground for you, or out of it you were taken, for you are the dust and you shall, from dust you shall return. Now, curiously, who likes gardening? I expect not fewer. Okay, not very. Uh, this is actually our backyard and... It seems like the curse that Adam gave God is like, um, what do they call it, a, g- a green thumb if you're good at gardening? So maybe like a curse against gardeners. So uh, if that's the case, I can say, yep, God, I've definitely felt that one. If you can see those green plants, um, it's uh, called agapanthus. Some people buy these, but uh, we actually, our, our family, we just can't stand these because they take up everywhere and their roots are just so th- um, solid that it takes a while just to uproot just one. So I've got a new method of using golf clubs to actually get rid of it. But that's another story. Um, so it's an ongoing toil that I feel like I have a battle every summer. I to dig up all these agapantins, club them away, get rid of them. But, and I said, yes, well done. Take a picture of that. That's how proud I am of my little job. Well done. And then uh, two weeks later, I look back and I'm like, it's back to where it was. It does not match the photo. I try to at least keep that path clear now. So is that what God's talking about, that all of us will have this perennial curse of not being able to grow anything. Is that all that God's talking about? And kind of think of it, if you think of it that way, or more logically, what God did to Adam while gardening for him, or if you like, was his actual work, his livelihood. So maybe all that God talked about in terms of all these bad things that would happen in terms of growing stuff was actually about his livelihood or the pain and the hardness is all that. It's about what he actually did for a living Take for example, we'll go through the text one quickly again. Bible talks about um curses the ground. So maybe it's to in our to in our world today it might be bad luck, whatever, or how we feel life is cursed on us, everything bad seems to happen. In pain you shall eat. Sometimes we oh, we feel pain during lots of disappointments, lots of different things. Um, I, I can't remember the last time I'm without, I've been without an ailment, whether it be like a sore something or broken something or ulcer or a headache or something. It just seems like there's always something nagging at me. Um, thorns and thistles, could that be maybe, you know, you put so much work into something and that you come up with thorns and thistles. Maybe the work we put in at work, output, your boss yells at you or whatever, whatever it is, so hardships at work. Uh, the sweat on your face, so coming home all tired, toiling at work continuously until you return to the ground. The idea of endless reputation, work, 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 and so on, and then for what until you go to the ground? It seems like this has been given to us, and is that fair? Is that right? There's a really tricky way about giving punishments. Um, speaking mainly to parents and maybe teachers, but to give a good punishment or good discipline you don't want to give it just purely out of anger or spite. Like if your child or sort of student wrongs you or does something wrong, you don't want to just get back and like, all right, I've given that punishment on the basis that, yeah, I feel good now. He hurt me, I hurt him. If that was your aim at discipline, you'd be in trouble with, I guess, lots of people. That's not, that's not a good case in terms of discipline. Um, I had this issue this week where I had to discipline a bunch of boys, were, as boys are really rowdy, and um, best way to do that in the primary age years is usually just keeping them in. You know, they love the sport, they love the free time. Hey guys, you owe me two minutes at lunch. Oh, boom. They just really feel it that way. But rather than just leave it at that as just, okay, um, you've hurt them, they have this thing where they feel like they're missing on something, rather a good discipline, I think, actually should teach a lesson. Because what's the point of just disciplining, disciplining, if all they feel is like, okay, whatever, I can deal with that. But it does not teach anything. So what I tried the other day was, okay, instead of just sitting there in two minutes, because I know they'll probably just start thinking about what they're going to do immediately after, or even start tying up the soccer boots as so they sit there, I thought, okay, you guys, can maybe can write a note of what you actually did and what you can do next time. So I don't know if that really worked, but they did write something that sort of sounded right at least. And thinking about God's, God's way of actually dealing with things is his way of just going, bang, hey, pain all your life, toil, hard work for the rest of your life because you wronged me. Ha, that's all right. Is that just out of pure spite and anger, or is he trying to teach us a lesson? Now, normally when sermons cover the idea of how I, um, good things happen to bad people while we deal with hardships, it's usually to, the usual answer I, I usually hear anyway, it's something on the lines of, oh, it's character building. It makes you a better person, or maybe you need to trust God a bit more. Um, uh, those things I believe are true. It definitely does, it said in the Bible itself. But think a bit of it at this very point in time when Adam and Eve just got um did the mistake and god gives a punishment it doesn't make sense if it's god is thinking okay i want to make your character better okay i want you to trust me more bang here's a punishment if that's the lesson it sort of doesn't fit like adam's like i made one mistake and you want me to build my character like it doesn't quite fit so maybe not saying those things are wrong but maybe there's something more and maybe it's this could it be that in God making things tough for Adam in those in those circumstances that we talked about, could it be that God actually wants to make the things that we strive for, the meaningful things like work, relationships, and so on, so that we can actually never be satisfied with those things? Okay, that sounds like torture, but let me go on. Um, C.S. Lewis says it best. So I'll read you a quote for you. It says, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, The most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So could it be that when God gives all these things, He does not want us to get too comfortable? I remember I was like, we were we. My parents used to bring me to like a nice hotel, not not nice hotel. It was like a beachside resort. I don't know why they brought us there because like the only beach in the beach near Malaysia that we could actually go to, and it's a resort there that we walk around like, wow, this is fantastic, and I love this place. And then they're like, don't get too comfortable, you know. We're going back soon. Like, oh. Okay, all right, fair enough. So well, let's, try, let's try it another way. Have you heard of the saying? Um, Go something like, um "There's a God-shaped hole vacuum in everybody's heart." I think Christians like to use that a lot in saying that. Okay, you can you know fill your heart with lots of different things, but ultimately you'll never be filled unless it's God. And I, when I first heard that, I was like, "Yes, that's brilliant. I love that." Okay, God, you know, fill me up that missing hole that I have. And I kind of, I think I got kind of wrong because I ended up kind of disappointed after that because how I thought of it was like this. I thought, okay, God is that missing part in my life. Great. Okay. God, I know I'm going to ask, I'm going to pray for all these things, bang, my physical needs, my spiritual needs, my social needs, all these things, and you're going to meet them for me and you're going to feel that heart for me. Uh, and at the end of the day I thought, oh yeah, God does come through in a lot of things, but I was still left sort of not satisfied totally. And I was still somewhat even disappointed God, with God, going, God, I've you know, God come to you and you still haven't satisfied me completely. And it's kind of I'll try to illustrate it in another way. Um I've been we've had a long I've been on a long distance. Has anyone done a long distance relationship before? Just curiously. Okay. It's you can ask anyone like it's not a fun, time. it's not It's not bad, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's fun, it's not the best. I did it for a year, and we managed to get by through the year um, on texting, uh, on Skype, on, okay, I shouldn't know, emailing, and on gifts. so sending stuff to each other. And those things were great. I mean, we managed to send stuff, and every time we got a text, every time we got to Skype, and it's like, fantastic, you know, it's good. But... If that is all that we have, it's not quite complete, is it? If all that we have to go by is just Skype messages and text messages, it's not quite there. So could it be that God actually puts this in us? Like, he keeps us going, going obviously, but there's this need for him that's a bit more, for us to long for something even more, something even better than that. I want to add on this promise, and um, this is actually a bit early on. Before we talked, before we read about the thorns and the thistles, all that pain that um, God sort of set out, He actually gave this promise first and foremost. And I think it's a lot more important. The Bible says here Genesis um, chapter three fifteen, um, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel sounds very wordy, sounds very complicated at times, but studying deep into it, this is actually the first pro- prophecy or the first promise of a Messiah, the first chance of a redemption, first chance of to be f- forgiven based on the wrong act. Before any punishment, before anything else, God thought these people are worth saving, these people are worth offering forgiveness to, I'm offering forgiveness before anything else. And that's what God is giving here right there and then. Yes, Satan might, might hurt, you know, obviously he's talking about Jesus in terms of hurting him, but ultimately he will gain the victory. I think that's, that's great for knowing from God that, you know, he's not just out there with a big stick in a way. He's not just there trying to teach us all the time. First thing he says is, it's okay. I have a plan for you. There is forgiveness. I think that's the God that we need to know more than the disciplined God. The God that we need to know more than the God that's trying to teach us stuff. This is the God we need to know that actually forgives us, loves us, and thought it worth it to do all that he did in the Bible for us. And secondly, if you look at the promise carefully as well, it kind of predicts what we talked about earlier, about how the early Christians actually faced all that struggle. Because if they had read this text and studied it carefully, they could have looked and said, hang on, as God's followers, as God's people, we're going to be sort of in this fight, in this struggle as well. And it's sort of predicted. And I think that sort of helps. I know some people are like, oh, so you know it doesn't make it better. I think knowing that you are going through some struggles can help. And especially this, that um, the promise is not just fulfilled in Jesus alone, but it actually goes a lot deeper than that. If you turn, I'm um, sure you will, it's on the screen. Romans chapter 16, verse 20. It's kind of like a follow-on promise to that, like a completion of that promise. It says, um, Now the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. I love this promise because it's not just an idea, yep, Jesus has died for me, but now I've got to go through all of this. But Jesus, the, the promise they're given was, is actually and can still be fulfilled every single day of our lives when we face all this hardship, when we face that toil, when we face all that things that we don't <laughs> want to face, but the promise is there that we can have victory. The promise is there that you know, God can help us, through all these trials, all these circumstances, whatever it is. Yes, it might be to build character. Yes, it might be to to help us trust on God. But ultimately, God is saying, you know, I'm giving you this because I want you back where, where it was, how it was before sin. I want you back to a better place. I don't want you to be comfortable in this world. That's why it makes sense to me anyway, why it's impossible. It's so hard to get comfortable. And so as much as we try, sometimes I lull myself into thinking, okay, now I'm finally comfortable, bang. Something else hits that I have to sort of change and you know try and get comfortable again. But God doesn't want it that way. We're going to close on this song. I'll um, get James to play in one second. It's a song called Blessings by the artist's Laura Story. I think the words really encapsulate what um, this message is today. And um I'll read you, i sort of just took out um, sections of, of the, I think, are most meaningful from the song. We'll hear the whole thing in a second, but just concentrate on these words for a second. It says, Because what if blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? We know that pain reminds his heart this is not our home. What if my greatest disappointment or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? What if trials of this life, the storms, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights are your mercies in disguise?